I fear not the dark itself, but what may lurk within it. Welcome to Lurk, bringing you creepy, strange, and bone-chilling stories with your host, Jamie Jackson. Lurkers, welcome to episode 41. In today's episode, I'm going to be telling you about some plane crashes that occurred on a mountain along the Appalachian Trail and the ghosts that are associated with them. I don't remember if I've ever mentioned this before, but long before this podcast was ever thought of, I was doing some research for a book. It was about six years ago, And I was turning 40, and I decided that I wanted to backpack the 40 miles of the Appalachian Trail that runs through Maryland. And I wanted to do that in celebration of my 40th birthday. So I wanted to hike 40 for my 40th, so to speak. That in turn prompted me to wonder what paranormal stuff I might encounter along the trail, which then led me to researching paranormal stuff on the entire Appalachian Trail. The book still hasn't been written. Basically, it's kind of in a rough, rough, rough draft stage, but it actually brought about this podcast. So I had already done a lot of research and I figured if I have the research, I might as well try to put it together into something because I don't have the time to sit and write the book. So the hope is that perhaps with organizing things for the podcast that maybe I'll get my button gear and work on my self-discipline and sit down and get this thing written. Anyway, uh, these stories came about from the research for that book. The Appalachian Mountains or Appalachian Mountains, either way is acceptable. I think the actual 100% accurate way is Appalachian based on the origin of the word It came from an Indian tribe, and so I think the proper pronunciation is Appalachian, but it kind of depends on where you're from. Where I'm from, we say Appalachian, so that's how I'm going to say it. The Appalachian Mountains themselves are dotted with plane crashes. Surprisingly, there are several found that are right along the Appalachian Trail. The Appalachian Trail itself runs through 14 different states on the East Coast, Georgia, Tennessee, North Carolina, Virginia, West Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine. I'm sure in the future you'll be hearing some more of the strange paranormal stories that I have found in the areas along the trail. Today, though, we're just going to focus on these couple of plane crashes. Actually, uh, it really just focuses on one particular area, and that's Holston Mountain. Hopefully, none of you are getting ready to board a plane while you're listening to this, or sitting on a plane while you're listening to this. If you are, you might not want to listen. So, as I mentioned, the crashes that I'm going to be discussing happened on or around the Holston Mountain, which is located in the Cherokee National Forest in Tennessee, with a small northernmost portion located in Virginia. 
So this mountain is in the eastern portion of Tennessee, right there where it borders the state of Virginia. On January 8th, 1959, Southeast Airlines Flight 308 took off from McGee-Tyson Airport in Knoxville, Tennessee, headed for the Tri-Cities Regional Airport in Blountville, Tennessee. Flight 308 was 27 minutes late leaving on what was the second leg of its flight, with 10 people on board, 7 passengers, and 3 crew. The plane was cleared for an approach on runway 27 at the Tri-Cities Airport. Visibility at the airport was 3 miles in light snow and fog, with a 900-foot broken ceiling and overcast at 1,700 feet. The crew reported a problem with the automatic direction finder, and they were unable to find the outer marker. This was about 8.32 p.m. Captain James F. Holder, the pilot of another flight coming into Tri-Cities, began looking for Flight 308 as he approached to land after hearing of their problems with the automatic direction finder. Holder said there had been heavy overcast earlier, but it had cleared once he had gotten to Bristol. Holder stated that he could see several landmarks, but over toward Holston Mountain, there was a heavy cloud formation. It was his belief that Flight 308 was in this cloud formation near the mountain. A TVA guard at the South Holston Dam reported hearing a plane flying low over the dam that night. He said he heard and saw the plane flying low over the dam. It came from the direction of the airport and after making a complete circle, continued on its course. He lost sight of the plane, but the last time he saw it, it was headed towards the mountain. The person in charge of the control tower said the person on the radio, either the pilot or co-pilot, sounded normal and not excited. The aircraft passed to the east of the outer marker of the airport, and while outside the normal procedure turn area, it descended and hit the wooded slope of Holston Mountain. When the plane did not arrive, a search started on the mountain. Not sure exactly where the plane had gone down, people were combing the almost impenetrable terrain of the mountain. Sometime in the early morning hours of January 9th, a bright light was seen coming from a densely wooded area near the top of the mountain. This excerpt from the Knoxville News Sentinel tells the story. Life-saving crew members noticed the light while driving over the mountain on Highway 421. From a point near the top of the mountain, the light appeared to line up generally in a westerly direction with South Holston Dam. Other life-saving crew members, highway patrolmen, and Civil Air Patrol personnel saw it. Hopes mounted that the wreckage had been spotted and there were survivors. Lieutenant Ed Allen of the Civil Air Patrol gave this description of it. As we'd wave our lights horizontally back and forth, the beacon would do likewise. When we moved ours up and down, so would the other light. It would not blink, however, at least to my knowledge. One report was that the light blinked in return to the searcher's light. Lieutenant Allen continues, There was no sign of fire, and this light didn't come from a fire. We watched it until daylight, 
and searchers moved into the area trying to locate it, but we found after daylight we couldn't pinpoint the location of the light. Reports of the light were the only working leads on the location of the plane wreckage. Dozens of searchers spread out through the area, and there were even life-saving crew members who launched boats into the lake to check some islands in line with the light. All accessible areas were searched, but still, nothing was found. Finally, search planes were able to pinpoint the location of the wreckage. Searchers made their way through rugged terrain and found the wreckage of the plane slammed directly into the mountainside. Everyone had died instantly. There were no survivors. The bodies never moved. There were no marks or footprints in the snow, and no light or flashlight was found. There has never been any explanation of where the light came from or what it was. There was no evidence of anything that could have produced the light source at the crash site. Perhaps it was one of the souls lost trying to make sure there was some closure for the families. Holston Mountain has been the site of several plane crashes resulting in death. July 9, 1964, United Airlines Flight 823 took off from Philadelphia International Airport in Pennsylvania, headed for Huntsville, Alabama. It was a regularly scheduled flight with stops in Washington, D.C. and Knoxville, Tennessee. At 4.26 p.m., United Flight 823 departed Washington National Airport in Washington, D.C. Her destination was Knoxville, Tennessee, scheduled to land at 6.21 p.m., carrying her 35 passengers and four crew members. The flight took off with no difficulties. The plane itself was, was a Vickers 745D Viscount, a four-engine passenger plane with the registration number of N7405. Most of the passengers were businessmen and women. At least four of them were doctors specializing in blood diseases and platelets, heading to a conference. At least two children, ages six and four, were on board. There was no indication of trouble at any point in the plane's flight. At 6.02 p.m., the plane was flying at 11,000 feet and 24 miles southwest of Holston Mountain, when suddenly, without explanation, the pilots went off the instrument flight plan, and not long after, the plane vanished off the radar entirely. The last radio transmission of the pilots verified that everything was in order with no problems. For approximately the next 10 minutes, the plane was simply gone. A witness on the ground, Mrs. J.E. Waldrop, reported seeing a flash and saw the plane slam into a hill. Newport Assistant Police Chief Alvin Webb stated, I looked up and saw bodies flying everywhere and a state trooper said the plane just disintegrated in midair. There were several reports of falling bodies. The plane crashed into an area known as Trentham Hollow. Bodies, personal effects, and wreckage were scattered on the hill in a half-square-mile area. The wreckage was still burning when searchers arrived, and they shut the road down. Floodlights were used throughout the night to remove the bodies and take them to a makeshift morgue in Newport, Tennessee. FBI and a 12-man team from the Civil Aeronautics Board 
investigated the possibility of any federal violation, including a bombing in the crash. The FBI reported there was no immediate indication there was a bomb aboard the airliner, but there was also no indication of what caused the crash. To this date, there has never been an indication as to the cause. The wreck site was so far off the beaten path, a road had to be bulldozed for authorities and rescuers to reach the site. What remained of the craft was minimal. Not a single seat survived. They were all reduced to particles. Engine parts had been thrown over a thousand feet from the crash zone. Bodies and body parts were charred beyond recognition. One body, that of a small boy, was pulled from a tree. Of the 39 people on board, not a single person survived. United called the FBI to assist since no one could determine the cause of the crash. On site, the FBI reported finding papers related to the Oak Ridge Nuclear Research Facility and confiscated them without disclosing their contents. The bodies and parts were collected as best as could be and transported to Newport for the storage until their families could be notified and the bodies reassembled as much as possible. The morgue that was chosen wasn't big enough to hold the bodies, so the bodies and parts were taken to the Cock County Memorial Building and stored in the gymnasium for over two weeks while the investigation continued and the families were notified. The gymnasium was not air-conditioned, and in the summer heat, it was a horrific scene. The property itself was located in Newport, Tennessee, in the heart of Cock County. A large red-brick Colonial Revival-style construction, the Cock County Memorial Building, was finished in 1931 for the American Legion, becoming post number 41. It was designed by Manley and Young, the same architects who designed the Cock County Courthouse. The building itself was listed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1995 and served for many years as a community meeting spot, an entertainment venue, and a sports hall. While designed as a meeting spot for the increasing number of veterans who were part of the American Legion, the darkest period of the building's otherwise warm and vibrant history took place in the hot summer of 1964. The Memorial Building continued to operate as a venue, but its use continued to slow until it was mostly a meeting place in the later years for the surviving American Legion members. The building is known to be haunted by strange sounds, moving objects, and uncomfortable presences that have been experienced by American Legion members. The American Legion called in a local paranormal investigation team to see if they could document events to make their members feel a bit more at ease. During the investigation, The two areas that seemed to be the most active were the gymnasium and the sub-basement and basement areas. The main basement had been converted into a dressing room for when stage plays were put on. The sub-basement was where the old boiler system was kept. In the dressing room, there was an EVP captured of a child and later a woman screaming and crying, moaning for her child. The sub-basement was the site of a terrifying encounter. The steps leading down into the area were rickety wood, and the floor itself in that old boiler room was covered in water. There were no electric lights. In that room, the investigator experienced something that they were unsure how to describe, other than a presence, or an intelligence without form. They saw nothing, heard nothing, but they could feel it.
a deep cold that chilled the investigator to the bone and made him feel threatened and oppressed. He said, As I left the area, I felt its heavy presence behind me, following me up those rickety stairs, so close I could feel it on my neck. It was death. It was sadness, and it was hate, a predatory thing that lurked in that darkness. In the gymnasium throughout the night, old-fashioned wooden bingo balls would throw themselves from the bleachers down to the floor, hitting, bouncing, and rolling. They conducted an experiment by recording the numbers on two balls and rolling them across the floor to the opposite wall. They heard the balls rolling across the tongue-and-groove hardwood floor, and then the numbered balls came back to them, as if something were playing with them. The only issue was that the balls that returned to the investigators rolling across the floor were not the same ones that they had sent to the other side. This experiment was repeated over and over. They collected the balls and realized the numbers corresponded to the alphabet and they spelled out the words boy and girl. Comparing that to the passenger manifest of the victims' bodies of the plane crash that were stored there in the building, they discovered two names, N. Anderson, six years old, a little girl, and R. Harper, who was four. Earlier that night, the investigator had been doing a tour of the gym when he saw what he thought was a small boy with a bowl-shaped haircut and an old-fashioned clothes standing off to one corner. The boy looked strange, like a hologram, blue and flickering. When the investigator approached the boy, the boy vanished without a sound. The investigators recorded sounds of children playing in the building, laughing and some crying. During one EVP session during the investigation, they were in the gym in front of the stage. As they sat there, one investigator claimed that something was touching the back of her neck, and the lead investigator of the group asked if whatever was touching the investigator's neck could do something else. There was a sharp whistle and an explosive wham. Needless to say, all the investigators jumped, and there was significant cursing. A quick investigation revealed that the double doors that led to the kitchen area had been blasted open doors that had been previously locked. The doors had slammed so hard into the plaster wall that it had taken a chunk out of the wall and cracked the door. I'm going to share this last story about Holston Mountain, which actually has nothing to do with plane crashes. After hearing stories about people dying and haunting the mountain, I thought maybe we should lighten it up a little bit. In December 1873, a Mrs. Cardwell went out to her smokehouse to get some bacon for breakfast. Just as she was reaching the meat bench, something sprang out at her. She said, It was the most horrible creature of a man I have ever seen. He was very large, tall, and had long shaggy hair and a beard, fiery eyes, very large white teeth, extra large hands with dagger-like fingernails, and was completely nude. He jumped across the bench and over her as she fainted and fell to the floor. Her husband, who was on the back porch, saw the man flee up the mountainside and into the woods. This was the first of many sightings of the Holston Mountain Wild Man. 
In the late winter of 1874, a woman who lived near the head of Sharps Creek went into a barn to milk her cow. She found the wild man there suckling the cow already. She immediately surrendered her rights to the milk and went screaming to the house. She would never go to the barn alone after that. Neither would I if I walked in and saw some crazy-looking wild man sucking on a cow udder. I would be done. A year or two later, some ladies went berry-picking on the high slopes of Holston Mountain. When they arrived at the berry patch, the dreaded wild man was already there picking berries. The women turned and hurried back home, their berry-picking forgotten. On a snowy morning in 1879, a family arose to find barefoot human tracks all around their home. There was even evidence that he had tried to open the front door, and he had approached several windows. It was also reported that he appeared in the doorway of a one-room schoolhouse. The students and teacher fled the wild man through the open windows. Though a very fearsome sight, he was never known to hurt anyone. One time, a well-known circus sent several men into the woods to try and catch him and make a sideshow act out of him. Though they had several sightings of him, they could never make a successful capture. In January 1887, some were tracking rabbits in a new, in new fallen snow. They came upon the body of the wild man, lying face down in deep snow at the base of a cliff. It appeared that he had been running late in the night and had just run right off the edge of the cliff. He was buried there where he fell. Some, however, have claimed to see his ghost roaming the mountain still to this day. I don't think I want to see the ghost of a shaggy, dirty, long fingernailed, white teeth, crazy looking naked man. I can see that at home. I'm just kidding. My husband never listens to this show. He'll listen to this one just because I said that. That's going to do it for this episode. This one's a little bit shorter. It's been a little bit hectic around here these days. My son has been working on his Eagle Scout project, and it's been all hands on deck trying to get uh, it completed because he has decided to rebuild two bathrooms and make them ADA accessible and do a whole lot of other work. So it's very admirable that he's chosen this as a project. It's a huge undertaking. But let me tell you, there are moments where I wish he had just built a bench or a picnic table. Um, As I said, that's going to do it for this episode. Remember, you can vote for Lurk in the Paranormality Magazine's Top 10 Paranormal Podcast. That website link is paranormalitymag.com backslash vote 25. The link is on our Facebook page and it will be posted in our show notes. Show notes for those who aren't sure are the description of the episode. If you go to the episode on whatever platform you use, you can hit see more to see the full description and any links that have been shared. You can find Lurk wherever it is that you listen to your favorite podcast, or you can find it at lurkpodcast.com, where you'll find episodes as well as social media links. We have Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and we have a YouTube channel. You can send any stories or suggestions to us at lurkpodcast at yahoo.com. 
And you can find cool merch at lurkpodcastmerch.com. If you have a moment, we would love for you to take the time to comment or give us a five-star review. We're still a new podcast, so all of that helps us be seen by other people and get our name out there. So if you have a minute, you can rate us on Apple. I believe Spotify now allows you to rate podcasts, and you can also rate us on Facebook. So that's it. And until next time, keep lurking.